Welcome to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 18, Masquerade. I don't know whether to like burst into song here or not. I feel like that would be appropriate. Masquerade! Different faces <laughs> on parade. Masquerade. Something like that, yeah. Oh, that's been on my Spotify on repeat for a while now. <laughs> Has it? Oh, I actually did put on the extended version of the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack while I was reading this the other day, and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot how good of a musical this is. Oh god, it fucking (laughs) slaps. Andre Lloyd Webber knows. It is like an 80s rock power ballad if it was a French gothic drama. (laughs) Mm. I am deeply in love with that musical. But before we get to the book itself, we do have a Twitter business to take care of. A Twitter business? Yeah. A Twitter business. Wow. As Crush Bandicoot would say. <laughs> so we had uh, Walter Snuggles, is the, the screen name here, pointed out that Interesting Times, which is the last novel we talked about on this podcast, is pretty funny in a few points, but honestly is pretty racist. The idea that people are too polite to form a revolution is infantilizing as well as being very white savory, although Genghis Cohen is arguably half Asian with his inspiration. I didn't think about Cohen as maybe being a half Asian character, but I could see it in the Genghis Cohen characterization. And we definitely agree mm. with you, Walter Snuggles, in terms of there are a lot of these characters that deal with some pretty racist tropes, especially as they pointed out on Twitter, the idea that People being too polite to form a revolution. We didn't talk about that in the in the episode, but I definitely think that that's something that comes from a, a stereotype for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I also liked the follow up tweet. Whatever you do, don't listen to the audiobook. Whatever accent the actor is trying to do is infinitely worse than any of the poorly aged jokes. Oh no! Oh, that sounds no. horrible. I'm not gonna lie. I have never listened to the audiobook of. Any of these? That's not true. I have listened to the audiobook of The We Free Men, but not of the others. I don't want to listen to the audiobook of this if it's being done by a white narrator. That sounds horrible. Yeah. The thing with The We Free Men is that, like, it's funny when you do a Scottish accent. And everyone's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. And even if you do a bad Scottish accent, it's not, like, you know, it's not actively harming people. Whereas... If you do, if you're white and you do an, uh, you know, an accent from any country in Asia, not just like Chinese or Japanese, which are kind of the defaults, you're perpetrating this centuries-long train of abuse uh, and suffering, and then it's just like, oh well, haha, funny joke. No, no, not funny joke at all, and especially because I met, I did mention this in the last episode. There have been a lot of hate crimes against Asian American and Pacific Islander people in the U.S. Mm. over the last couple of years. I mean, I'm not saying it's just the last couple of years. There have been hate crimes against those people since they came here, you know, 200 years ago. But all of this sort of thing contributes to it. All of the stereotyping, all of the making fun of accents, like all of that contributes to othering these people. Mm. And so, yeah, that's definitely something that's really... Important to bring up, I think, 
um, especially as we're dealing with the consequences of those things. Yeah, not cool at all, guys. All right, complete change of subject <laughs> to back Boom. to masquerade. Opera time. Opera time. So, Masquerade is the 18th Discworld novel and the fourth Witches novel. It is loosely based on a novel by French author Gaston Leroux, and it's two very famous adaptations, the 1925 film depiction featuring the brilliant Lon Chaney. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. And of course, the musical that we were both referring to at the beginning of the episode, Andrew Lloyd Webber's 1986 musical that has also been adapted into a film featuring Gerard Butler and Emmy Rossum. Beautiful film. No notes. Surprisingly, there has also been one stage adaptation of Masquerade, this book, in Prague beginning in 2006. It lasted for five years, and Pratchett actually attended the closing performance, which I think is, that's really cool. Yeah, and definitely, I think this is, because I remember we had this kind of question with the Morph adaptation, where it's like, Morph is a strange one to start with, and we were wondering how it could possibly, not that it's impossible, but we were like, I wonder what route they're going with with adapting Morph for stage. But this one definitely, like, I mean, partly because it takes place on stage, but you can definitely imagine it being performed. It's very much about opera and theater. And I'm, yeah, we're going to talk about it, but I could definitely see, like you said, this being adapted for the stage. Yeah. Might I also slip in the the show's earliest ever Niger reference is the Mountain Goats? This is a quick cheeky Ooh. reference. You mentioned Lon Chaney in the 1925 adaptation of... Phantom of the Opera, Lon Chaney is referenced in the uh, song Letter from Belgium, where someone, uh, Susan's got her notebook, uh, it's got recipes for cake, freehand drawings of Lon Chaney, blueprints for geodesic domes, all that kind of stuff. Perfect, perfect. I love Lon Chaney films. I will watch any of them that are available to me. All right, quick summary of Masquerade. Agnes Nitt is done with witches. She wants to reinvent herself by becoming an opera diva named Paradita X Dream in Ankh-Morpork, the furthest place she can think of from Lanker and the witches. But Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og need a third to their trio, and they are not above traveling to protect one of their own from the infamous opera ghost. What were your first thoughts on this book, Nigel? This is great. This book is great. Uh, and if I were to describe it with a lyric from Phantom of the Opera, I would describe it with, Dear Andre, what a splendid party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of does feel like a party. I do have a question for you, though. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And I want to talk about all the ways in which this book is great. But I have to admit that reading this again, I felt at first... I. I guess I should be clear. I think this book works, but mm. I did feel at first like this was a really odd choice for a witch's book. At first, it really felt to me like it should have been more of a watch book because this is definitely taking place in Ockmorepork and it has a big murder mystery vibes to it. Yeah, it's and their so, bread and butter. Yeah, exactly. And so the fact that it is a witch's book, do you think this is an odd pairing for Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og? Slightly, but then, like, when you get into kind of, like, the the themes and stuff that it's talking about, then you're like, oh, well, it makes sense that this is why these characters are. Not that, like, Sam Vimes and the rest of the Watch, you know, couldn't deal with this problem, but 
Um, they're definitely. It. I don't know. You need someone like Granny Weatherwax or Nanny Og to deal with the the problem. The two things that stood out to me that I think make this ultimately work as a witch's book as opposed to like a watch book is that one, it fits into the theme of literary parody that we've been doing. If we skip equal rights, <laughs> which is like its own thing, and we start with Weird Sisters. Weird Sisters is a parody of Macbeth and Witches Abroad is a parody of like various fairy tales. And then Lords and Ladies is a parody of Midsummer's Night Dream. This is obviously a parody of Phantom of the Opera. So it sort of fits into that thematic thread, I guess, through the witch's books by continuing Mm. that literary parody. But then also you get this idea of like the theater is a more magical place, perhaps, than the theater of the opera. Those are more magical places than the watcher perhaps used to dealing with. These are places where Granny Weatherwax has more insight, I suppose. And Nanny Og, to be honest with you, I think Nanny Og's thread in this is really fascinating. They they seem like they have more familiarity, even though it is like a strange new place to them. They seem to understand it perhaps better than Sam Vimes would. I was reading some of the reviews people had left of the book on Goodreads. And one of, I can't remember who it was, and I'm not going to go check because uh, I disagree with this review like in regards to this book but the point they make is valid that it's like they didn't enjoy it because they feel like Pratchett's parodying of specific works kind of like alienates people from like enjoying them and like I mean I don't agree with that in this book but I think maybe that might be because like I really enjoy Phantom of the Opera and stuff but I feel like even without the context of knowing a lot about opera, you can go into this book. Mm-hmm. But definitely, all of the witches ones so far have been stuff that's fairly like accessible or like universally known. You know, because like I mean, Shakespeare and fairy tales are pretty. You know, they're pretty there, and like I mean, it relies on a couple of things from Phantom of the Opera and from like you know tropes of what happens on opera, but that's like. Nothing you couldn't intuit if you had no knowledge at all. I mean, I would definitely push back a little bit on whether Shakespeare is universal or not, but he's definitely more universal than Gaston Leroux, for sure. Yeah. But I do think, too, that what helps this not be as specific to Phantom of the Opera is the fact that Terry Pratchett clearly did a lot of research on opera because there's a lot of stuff in here that is not in the original source material. I have read the novel and I've seen all of the adaptations of Phantom of the Opera. There's no, there's nothing about like bad luck or, you know, like any of those like things, the way that the musicians interact with the chorus and the dancing girls and all that stuff. None of that is in the original. It's very clear that Terry Pratchett did a lot of research on this. And we can see that also from his dedication, which Masquerade is one of the books that has a dedication My thanks to the people who showed me that the opera was stranger than I could imagine. I can best repay their kindness by not mentioning their names here. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's definitely something that Terry Pratchett learned a lot about before writing it. And I'm not an opera fan. Do do you listen to a lot of opera or know a lot about opera? Nope. I really hate it when opera questions come up as the music round on University Challenge. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't know what to answer either, but I still very much enjoyed this book. So 
you know, I think there are ways in which you can approach this book with very little familiarity with the source material and still perhaps get something out of it, but maybe not for people who just dislike Phantom of the Opera, I guess. Yeah, sucks to be them. Sucks to be them. So let's actually start there. Let's start with Phantom and then work our way out towards the more familiar Discworld qualities. So you like Phantom of the Opera. Have you read the book or just seen the musical with Gerard Butler? Just seen the musical with Gerard Butler. I mean, that's totally fair. But like, I've seen it a ridiculous amount of times. It's not like, oh, she's seen it once. (laughs) I've seen this film, like, I'd say upwards of 50 times. Because, like, wow. both my aunt and my mother really like the film. So, like, sometimes they come over and be like, oh, we'll put on Phantom of the Opera. And, like, we had it on DVD and stuff. I have three separate versions of the soundtrack as CDs put onto my iPod Classic. Like, I've, 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 seen, I've seen this film a lot. <laughs> so you are very familiar with some of the things that are being parodied here. Yeah. I, oh, God, I really like the notes scene. Like, all of, like... When I was watching the film, the way they like the way they incorporate the songs and stuff, it w- w- when they're they're reading the notes and they're like PTO, what's PTO? Please turn over, you know, um, notes every yeah. which way. Please, you know, like find another. This is like the second bassoon. He's simply out of tune, and then the way they turn it on, uh, it in masquerade is hold on now. I'm getting the actual one I highlight, which just made me laugh so much. Bucket sniffed the envelope. It reeked of turpentine. The letter inside was on a sheet of the opera house's own note paper. In niche copperplate writing, it said, <laughs> Beware, you're sincerely the opera ghost. Like, <laughs> And then like a later one, it's got like, P.S. <laughs> like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Terry Pratchett has quite clearly like recognized the absurdity of a man dressed up as a ghost going around an opera house. Uh, and then be like, well, in this one, it, it, lunacy, simply lunacy, to quote <laughs> musical again. And the joke about the exclamation points, five exclamation points is a sure sign of a diseased mind. That comes back up again here a little bit more clearly because, yeah, there are a lot of exclamation points in these notes. Which made me rethink how I type texts. Every single text I send has <laughs> at least one exclamation mark. It's called being gay. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to talk about Phantom as uh, like on the queerness scale of musicals, it is all the way up there as being very queer. It is a very queer musical without actually having gay people in it, or at least gay people yeah, being gay in it. it's the straightest gay musical I've ever seen, <laughs> or the gayest straight musical. One of the two. It's really hard to tell. Yeah, because you could make the argument for like Christine Daae being queer-coded. Yeah. I don't know, with some of her interactions with Raoul. But then also it's like, well, her relationship with the Phantom is very heteronormative. It's very, like, compet almost. My solution to every love triangle is why can't they just be in a polyamorous relationship? But that's, yes. like, me. Except I didn't like Raoul, so I'm like, well, I don't care. Yeah, why wouldn't you just... Uh, yeah, I think that's the weakest part of Phantom is that Raoul is not actually that engaging of a character and so it's like why do you want to leave with him like the phantom's interesting but you know i guess he's also a murderer yeah i don't ship them because it's a toxic relationship that's bad but also like i right. think the, 
Phantom as a character is cool, like as a and symbol. Raul is not. <laughs> yeah, Raul's just kind of whiny. He's kind of just there. Yeah, yeah, but like then also like how they translate the Phantom into this one. Like I mean, we all know we all kind of associate what like the film version especially has presented as the Phantom's mask, like that half face kind of one. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this one made it kind of scarier, where it's like, this is a full-face one that's completely blank and featureless, which is one of the things that, like, makes serial killers like Jason Voorhees and Mike Myers scary, according to, like, psychologists, because it's a blank mask you can just project anything on. Yeah, so, funny story about that. So, in the original book... The mask is much closer to the one that Terry Pratchett has his ghost wearing. It's much more like featureless, much more like a skull type mm. of look. But but when I say mask from Phantom of the Opera, that's prob- probably not the one you think of. Right, yeah. But what had happened was is that when Andrew Lloyd Webber did the musical... He wanted the actor to wear a full mask, but Michael Crawford was like, I can't act through a full mask. So that's why it's the half mask in the musical. Hmm. They actually like did had because I mean, the Phantom is also facially disfigured, which thankfully was not in this. Um, the, uh, Walter's especially Walter's disability is not physical, which is good in some ways because it doesn't fall into that old trope of like oh he's physically disfigured he must be evil although it does stray into yeah like this person like when they think walter is the phantom and the one well the phantom who kills people it's straying right. dangerously close to this person has a mental disability and they kill people which is kind of like the big problem with moon knight right but that's not actually what happens right it turns yes, out walter thankfully. hasn't been killing people did you know that it was going to be two people the whole time? No, I didn't guess at all. I was I, like, I don't know whether I brought it up on this, but it's like, I kind of like to turn my brain off and not figure things out when I like yeah. watch it. I remember when I went to watch the Wolverine in the 2014 one where he goes to Japan, where it's like, it, where it's revealed the old dude is the silver samurai. I was shocked because I went into the theater you and I was were? like, I'm just going to, I was just going to watch it. It was like... On subsequent reviewings, is the most obvious thing ever. But, like, 14-year-old me was like, I'm just going to go in and watch this film. And so, like, I was fully convinced it was Walter. And then when Agnes yells and uh, as the Phantom runs off and then Walter shows up again. And then I'm like, oh, well, it is. But then I also didn't... It's Salzella in the end, right? Yes, Salzella. Yeah, the names are slightly confusing to me. I was just, it felt very hard to keep track of who was who nearly, and then you ended up with, like, Henry Slug becoming, what's his name, Senor? Enrico Basilica. Yeah, it was just, like, it was a bit hard for me to follow, but I still didn't think it would be Salzella. I was like, who the hell is this? Maybe it's just, I would have thought it might have been really funny to just have it be a completely unknown person. (laughs) Yeah, just somebody who's just there. Yeah, this is a thing, I'd like to popularize this as a term, where it came from, I I watched, like, a lot of Scooby-Doo. I've seen a ridiculous amount of Scooby-Doo. I came up with this term, it was called the man from the gas company, which is the person that Scooby-Doo makes you think is the person, and then they do the bait and switch where it's like, it's not actually them, because you get into a situation where 
they're trapped or they're being threatened by whatever the monster is. Because there was an episode where there's this really ominous man in a flat cap. And in the end, they've solved the mystery. And they go, well, who the hell are you? And then he just goes, I'm the man from the gas company. I think that's really <laughs> funny. But there's an episode of Be Cool, or not Be Cool Scooby-Doo, What's New Scooby-Doo? Where there's, so, it's the mystery, and the mystery's like this giant eagle, and then they all mask it, and they go, it's no one we've seen before. Like, we, we've never seen this person before. And I think that's hilarious. Cizella is not a very memorable villain. Part of it is because Pratchett had to hide his identity for most of the book, that he actually was the villain. Although, mm. he is not a nice person before the reveal. So, I guess, like cool he just kind of comes across as really catty for a lot of the book and then suddenly it's like oh no he's insane and he's the villain yeah he definitely because the whole thing is that it's meant you're meant to think that it's walter but like all throughout you see that walter is kind and caring and he like actively tries not to harm people even though he's like constantly put down and denigrated by people and so like yeah i was like salzilla is a bit of a dick but then at the end, like when he's on stage and he's talking about how much he hates opera, I really enjoyed that because I'm like, yeah, just yes, lean in yeah. to that like <laughs> mellow. That was a massive spike of audio. I apologize for your ears as I said yes and clicked my fingers. But like <laughs> lean into the pantomime villain. And so I was like, this is this is who he was supposed to be. And, like, I understand that the narrative needs to have a mystery around who the thing, like, who the the phantom is, who the ghost is in this case. But, like, he should have always just been an over-the-top, like, pantomime villain. He should have been what old Bond villains were to old Bond to this book. Where it's like, this is the most insane character person. Where it's like, what's this guy's defining characteristic? Oh, he really likes gold. Oh, okay. Or like Don John in Much Ado About Nothing, I am a plain dealing yes. villain. What's odd about this book, too, I think this book does a really good job of picking out some interesting themes of Phantom that I, I definitely want to talk about. But the book does, I think, suffer from adding this layer of who's the ghost? The ghost is going to be someone we know, which is never really a thing in either the book or the movie version. Yeah, because the book because one the ghost is like... It's just some random guy. Yeah, he just lives in the basement. Yeah, like, it's, like, not somebody who's a main character. Like, there's no, like, we're going to unmask the ghost. Like, no, the ghost is a person who lives in the basement of the opera house. Which, by the way, the Gaston LaRoe was a huge fan of the opera and actually was really good friends with a lot of the opera people. And there, his description of the Paris Opera House is incredibly detailed. Like, there are actual flooded basements in the opera house. Like, you can actually take a boat <laughs> and and sail these vast catacombs that are underneath the opera house, which is just sail like... Sail past the point of no return? Yeah, like, why why wouldn't you write a gothic novel about, <laughs> about the Phantom if that's your setting, right? I mean, I've, yeah. I have a picture of me standing in front of Box 5, which is the box of, at the Paris Opera House that they reserved for the, the ghost. So, you know, we get a lot of those different those different phantom references. We get box eight, which is a reference to box five. We get the rat catcher, Mr. Pounder. That's a, there's a prominent character in the book who's not in the musical called the rat catcher. There's a lot of like those different references to that in there. 
But the problem is, is that by saying like, oh, well, this is going to be someone that we're going to know. We have to figure out who it is. You don't really give Cezella a chance to really flex as a villain or as a character. Although mm. I do think it's interesting that Walter, like Walter represents the softer side of the ghost, which maybe Terry Pratchett thought, how are these two the same character? Like, how could the ghost love music so much and be a killer? I mean, maybe that's Terry Pratchett reading a lot into that book, but I just, I find that interesting. Definitely. Cause like, I mean, he's, he's the part that like, you know, they, that everyone humanizes and sympathizes with about the phantom, you know, where he's, been treated awfully by society and all he wants to do is like find comfort in the opera and he is actively like i mean they say walter like at the end you know when they're instituting him as new like head of the opera where he knows everything about the opera and he knows everything about the opera house and like you know the phantom is like the phantom is like well change this because this sounds awful and it's bad opera and so he quite clearly cares but then he is also like lynching people during performances and shit like the whole keep your hand at the level of your eyes is is like to prevent yeah. you from getting strangled by the by the phantom. Yeah, Phantom of the Opera is very much a Frankenstein's creature narrative. I think maybe Pratchett read this and thought like how is this the same character? This clearly can't be the same character and thus we get the Cizella Walter divide. Yeah, but I'm so glad that they're not like they didn't go the route of making it like, oh, they're split personalities, you know, where he puts on the mask and becomes Salzella, or they didn't try and do anything and make it like, you know, alters in uh, dissociative identity disorder. Like, mm-hmm. I'm really glad they didn't go that route. They were like, it's two people, and one of them really hates opera, and one of them really loves <laughs> opera, uh, and they're going to fight, or they're going to kiss. Yeah, one of the two. One of the two. Although I do like how Walter, like, when he puts on the mask, it's like he becomes a different version of himself. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a different identity. It's quite literally masking. Yeah, it is masking. Like, this idea of I can put on a mask and I can be anyone, which, of course, that's like a big theme in the book also with, like, Agnes and so on, which I definitely also want to talk about. But before we get there, I do want to talk about one last thing when it comes to Phantom that I think is really important in this book. So I was fascinated on this read by Terry Pratchett's very insightful look at the relationship between art and money, because I never would have gotten that out of The Phantom. But now that I've read this book again, all I can think is I want to rewatch that movie and reread the book, because I think what he's pulling out of that is there, because there's this idea that... The opera is taken over by two businessmen who know nothing about opera, know nothing about art. They're just businessmen. I think in the film, they're in the junk business is what they said. And they just yeah. became really rich and they bought the opera because it would help them like gain prestige. But the whole point of it is that they're trying to make the opera into a business and the opera and the opera ghost are actively resisting that model. They're like saying, no, like that's not what opera is about. And it, it's a obviously the interplay between art and money has been huge for centuries ever since you know patronages were a thing but i do think that it's interesting to have this conversation now because there's so much conversation in filmmaking and music the music industry especially about 
how has money and the idea of turning art into a business affected the art involved? So like director James Gray has talked in a recent interview about how studios should be able to lose money on art specialty divisions. The idea that like, well, we're not going to make this film because this kind of film doesn't make money is actually a really bad thing for the arts. Mm. Uh, Halsey just went on TikTok and said, "My, I have a new single, but my label won't release it unless I come up with a viral TikTok video. You know, like Wait, the idea that, that you have Halsey? to be able to. Yeah, that was Halsey. Oh, I have no idea what Halsey looks like. I saw that video, but it didn't connect with me that it was Halsey. I was like, that's abhorrent. But I thought this was like a new open cup. That's what Halsey looks like. Ah, Halsey. Halsey wears a lot of wigs, so sometimes it can be difficult to. to no, I've know never exactly seen a photo. I've like. never seen a photo or video of Halsey before. Oh, I love her. Hopefully, fingers crossed. I'm going to see her this weekend. I'm very excited. It'll Woo. be my second time seeing her, and I love her. And her new album's great. But anyway. Like, she just did a whole thing about how, like, she can't produce her art without the label interfering and the label being like, yeah, but if you don't have, like, a viral moment, is it going to make money? And, like, you know, like, this should be a single because it'll make money versus this song, which shouldn't be a single. You know, all of that stuff, I think, is, like, really interesting to talk about. And I think Terry Pratchett has taken that very minor thread in the book in the source material and elevated it in this yeah well on like the book and the uh, and the musical adaptation stuff like i mean the guy at the start when things begin to go awry he literally says gentlemen if you need me i should be in australia like i mean yes his thing is, like i mean because that, that you know that cost i mean it, it will cost you like five to six hundred euro to fly from you know france to australia now but i, I presume it will cost even more when you have to go by boat or whatever right. at that time, or across land, you know, through Europe to get to a different place to get a boat. So it really reeks of opulence, and, like, the whole, the big symbol of Phantom of the Opera is the giant chandelier, which was smashed, you know, and, like, they really draw attention to it in the film version because that's the first thing. Like, that's what they're auctioning at the start, isn't it? I'm pretty sure. Well, they they do like the music box and the monkey and stuff and whatever. And then they're like, well, this is the chandelier from the Grand Opera House. Uh, and that's the framing yeah. device they use. And in this book, they keep coming back to the chandelier and will it fall. But it made me think of Marvel, especially with like the recent She-Hulk trailer, because the CGI in that is bad. And the CGI in a lot of recent Marvel things has been noticeably bad. But it's also like they're spending that much money and they're making this many things because they're trying to churn out something which will make like a massive profit. And so like quality is put to the side to get this thing out where it's like, yeah, we can all dunk on the She-Hulk trailer for having bad CGI. But then it might also like make, you know, already overworked animators go into crunch time to have to like make this thing look better because they put out right. a core product because of like the way their money is spent to meet their like pre-planned release schedule. And that's a lot of what I was thinking about, especially because like, you know, the She-Hulk thing has been in the news recently, but like, you know, where like Salzella's whole thing is he just stole a bunch of money from the opera. Like the big thing when they read Walter's music at the end is, oh, you put music in and money comes out instead of you put money in and music comes out. 
But yeah, you then compare that to Undershaft, who's basically like this before he dies is like this building is sick. Like we never used to think about money when we made opera. Like, you know, the the idea Mm. we never used to think about, you know, does this person look right to sell? You know, because he's going to go to bat for Agnes and be like, no, she should actually play the role. And so, like, you know, there are it is an interesting contrast between the artists of the group who are just like, you know, no, we want to make this. We want to make this right versus the business people. But then you also contrast that in turn with Nanny Og, because the whole point of Granny and Nanny coming to Ankh-Morpork is so Nanny Og will get paid for her art. It it is a really interesting conversation that Pratchett is trying to have in this book. And I don't think it's a clear cut one. No, and especially now, because there's a lot of discussion nowadays and you see people like artists online when they're doing commissions and the way people treat them where it's like pay the people who you know to do the work they do and it's like right. i don't know i want to do audio productions and stuff but i want to have music and i can't do music so i'm but i'm not going to reach out to people who i know do music and be like hey make this like i mean i'm going to put together the money because they should be adequately compensated for their time but like that's a big thing that a lot of people don't seem to understand do it for the exposure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you, like you can eat exposure. I would not be surprised if someone in Discworld said something along those lines. That seems like a statement right out of Discworld. <laughs> you, I mean, it's true, though. People are always like, I'll pay you a dollar for it. or I'll, I'll, You should be happy that I'm giving you the exposure. And it's like, I can't eat that. I can't pay my rent with that. I saw a tweet today that was really funny. It was like, landlord... Your deposit needs to be three times the rent. Me, can you tell my employer that? Right, exactly, exactly. So yeah, it is interesting because it's like, these people do need to get paid, and so they need to be paid for their art. But at the same time, maybe money isn't everything when it comes to art as well. Although I do like the joke that musicals are more profitable than opera, because they are. I mean, I also thought it was funny that Walter basically turns out to be Andrew Lloyd Webber. (laughs) He writes a musical about cats. He writes Phantom. He writes Les Mis, uh, or, or Miserable Les. <laughs> what did you think about all of the theatrical opera traditions in this? The way that this book talks about what it's like to be on stage, the magic of being on stage, like the show must go on as sort of this runaway force that that has to be completed i really i'm really glad you brought that up because it's a really interesting contrast to like soul music and moving pictures where those were like eldritch forces from the dawn of the universe and like the music in soul music where it's like it wants to exist and it wants to make buddy holly ooey you look just like buddy holly Sorry, couldn't go an episode without making a Weezer reference. <laughs> is that our new Nigel? Nigel quotes the Mountain Goats. My, Nigel quotes. Actually, it's not even Nigel quotes Weezer. It's just Nigel quotes Buddy Holly. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, you. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? But, like, it wants to make him famous so it can survive. Whereas, like, the magic of theater and being on stage and they keep saying the show must go on. And then when the show stops, they say, well, it can't be stopped. It needs to continue and things start going awry, but it feels different. It feels less like, cause I know we had kind of our problems with, well, why does it need to be like a big Eldritch thing? 
in soul music. And there was a lot of discussion about, you know, its motivations and stuff. And I really like how it was in this where it's like, well, you're just going to carry away on stage and things are going to happen. It felt more in line with how Lillian and Granny Weatherwax talk about stories having to continue in uh, Witches Abroad. I didn't even think about that connection, but you're absolutely right. It's like soul music by way of Witches Abroad. I really liked also how they were like opera exists on a catastrophe curve. Like this idea that like, despite everything going wrong, somehow you have to make opera out of it. And that's just the way opera is. But I also liked the idea that this is a place where people are always on edge because not just because there's someone running around killing people, but because like show business is such a liminal space. It's so transitory, right? Like you it's so temporarily fraught because you are constantly like checking to make sure that this isn't your last good day, right? Like that your voice isn't going to get old, that you're not going to get old, that, you know, like you're, you know, that there's a lot about fatness in here that I don't appreciate, which we're going to talk about, but there's a lot about like, you have to stay thin. You have to look a certain way. You have to sound a certain way and age is the enemy. And that's why there's all of these like, you know, good luck and bad luck, all these rituals that they have to do. It almost reminded me of something from like American Gods, like this idea of like, this is worship. This is worship of a show, of an idea, right? We Mm. perform this, we do this thing, we have these rituals, and maybe in return, we get a moment of fame. And we try to prolong that fame as long as possible. It's Nothing New by Taylor Swift. Yeah, like the whole... You're going to be famous, but you have to, you know, like they're saying like Agnes has this great voice, but she can't be on stage because of how she looks. And so, like, I mean, they don't think that she's worthy either, but they're like, well, this will make us money by because people will come in and hear this, you know, this great voice and this will make the opera good. And so it feeds the opera machine. Um, mm-hmm. It's not an eldritch force, but it does feel like. Like it's magic. Like you're sacrificing something to make the magic. You're doing yeah. the you're going through the motions of the opera to make opera. And that's going to give you something in return, whether it's fame or youth or money or probably not money, but you know, like whatever it is that you're looking to get out of it. Hmm. So there's a lot of doubling in this book. I don't know if you notice that, because you get Walter and Cizella is one doubling. You get Agnes and Christine, another doubling. Agnes and Perdita. Yeah, so Perdita is sort of becoming a personality. I don't know if you've noticed that in this book. And then you get Granny and Nanny. They're two of the trio of which is the mother and the other one, although Nanny kind of has to perform <laughs> the maiden role a few times in this book, which I think puts her on edge. So they're looking for their third, right? They don't want to be a double, but they are sort of a double. Enrico Basilica oh, and Henry Slug. So like there are a lot of doubling roles in this. I thought it was really interesting. There's a lot of dialogue that kind of um, highlighted this um the stuff that was hold on now, I'm just getting the quotes. Like, I mean, at the start, even between the witches and Walter, at the start they when they're talking about Black Alice, yes, they're they needed to be three, or else it was going to be grey wings in the night, or the clang of the oven door, 
And then at the end, when they're talking to Walter about Black Alice, where it says opera would have filled uh, opera filled up places in Walter Plains that would otherwise have been empty, where it's like you know you need these things. Uh, you know, Walter Plinge lived opera. He breathed its songs, painted its scenery, lit its fires, washed its floors, and shined its shoes, which again is that worship. But opera filled up places in Walter Plinge that might otherwise have been empty. You know, where it's like this visceral need to have something which affirms your identity, which I think goes back to like, you know, Rincewind and his hat that says wizard, death yeah. and being, death and being the Reaper Man. Sam Vimes being the head of the watch, you know? We get it with Granny, right? Because Granny is the most powerful witch that has ever been now. She even says that she's more powerful than Black Alice ever was. I mean, Granny's a badass, but she has this, not really a crisis of identity as much, but she is still trying to figure out, like, what do you do with all this power? What, which I thought it was interesting because in the last book, we get to see her really flex that power, right? She borrows the bees, which no one has ever done before. In this book, yeah. she doesn't really flex her power as much. It's her figuring out, well, who am I even when I don't have to use this much power? I mean, yeah, she does also step outside of cause and effect. Yes, that's true. That was so fucking cool. I, I just I love the moment when she sits down at the fire and goes, well, I guess I've got time now. Uh, and that's when the wound from the sword happens. Because, like, the whole thing where well, you can't magic iron. That's right. So she does step out of cause and effect. So I take that back. She does use her power here. But it's not as uh, flashy, I think, as it was mm. in in Lords and Ladies. It seems to me that she's trying to figure out, well, I can't be Black Alice, right? Because she says, you know, once you know the difference between right and wrong, you can't choose wrong. You can only choose right, which reminded me a lot. I just watched The Matrix Resurrections last night for the second time. Love that movie. And mm. there's a there's a line in it where it's like, once you know about the choice, it's not really a choice anymore. Like you have to choose the red pill because, you know, once you know, how can you choose to go backwards? And so like yeah. it, that that really reminded me of it. So she's she already knows that what she has to choose, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other options. Yeah, the whole thing as well is that, well, Black Alice used to step outside of cause and effect, and it led to her eventual death. So, like, Granny choosing to use that feel, like, I think it's supposed to feel momentous, because they're mm -hmm. like, well, Black Alice did that, and we can't end up like her. And then, you know, like, she plays it coy. She doesn't tell Nanny how she ended up magicking the iron. Uh, Quote-unquote magicking. You know, she just tells them all right. to leave and that she'll be fine and whatever. And even when right. Agnes shows up at the end where she's like, you hurt your hand. And it's like, oh, well, it's healing now. So I feel like maybe what she did was was wrong slightly, but she did it in service of the greater good, which is still a choice for the right. Well, I guess the question, too, is did Black Alice ever take the time to experience that pain? Maybe. Granny takes the time. But maybe Black Alice always put it off. That would be a really interesting yeah. question. Is does does Granny at least understand that there's a price to be paid? I loved that she misses Magrat at the beginning. She would never admit it. But Nanny mm. even knows. She's like where she's like, oh, she must be really missing Magrat if she can't even be snarky about it. Yeah, you know it's desperate then. Magrat's not in this book. Their third is gone. 
What did you think about the return of the the maiden, the mother, and the other one, aka the crone? I think it's interesting because, like, one of the first things that I had highlighted was a quote about that. But, like, I mean, obviously, it's to do with identity and, like, the whole like witches need to be three to like work, and it's not just because like coven and stuff. Like the whole thing about ah, uh, he heard me talking about him. Fuck off, wasp. Um, they work well as three because, like, they're kind of a triple thing, and that's what's a mm-hmm. coven, even you, though you could have, like, three or more witches, but, um... But, like, they say, of course, it was nothing but an old superstition and belonged to the unlightened days when maiden or mother or the other one encompassed every woman over the age of twelve or so, except maybe for nine months of her life. These days, any girl bright enough to count... and sensible enough to take Nanny's advice could put off being at least one of them for quite some time. Even so, it was an old superstition, older than books, older than writing, and beliefs like that were heavy weights on the rubber sheet of human experience, tending to pull people into their orbit. There's that rubber sheet again. Yeah, like, this is an important thing, and, like, satisfying the need for there to be three feels important, and it's, like, that's where the power is, having three. And, like, that's why there's a lot of triple goddesses in um, Celtic mythology. Like, the mother goddess in Ireland is, like, that's three. Erubamba and Fola, and then the Morrigan has three aspects of Morrigan, Maka, and the Bab. Well, and you also get, like, the three graces in Greek mythology. And, yeah, lots of threes. Fates, the three furies, um, the nine muses, which is a multiple of three. I also think it just has to do with their dynamic, too, because kind of looking for it this time, Nanny says, you know, oh, like without it, we just get on each other's nerves. Like Nanny and Granny are best friends. They are just like irritating the shit out of each other in parts of this book. And I I honestly kind of think it's because Nanny is really struggling with both the maiden and the mother role. Like she's used to the mother role, but she's kind of having to perform the maiden role as well. It, when it comes to Granny, but they like they don't get along for parts of this book. Yeah, like in, in the whole like one of the central conflicts is that like Nanny Og has earned that money because she wrote that book, so like she's entitled to compensation for her time and labor. But like Granny Weatherwax is just like, well, I'm going to spend that money, and she you like yeah. she justifies it by saying, well, you said you'd never you know, like, take on money and stuff. And the whole witching thing, like, we've seen multiple things where, like, they, you know, like, where um, Nanny heals the man at the start, where he's like, well, what about payment? And she's like, well, no, I won't take money for it, but if you have something you can give me in kind, you know? (laughs) Or the part where she's like, witches witches hold everything in common, and Nanny says, well, that's really easy when you don't have anything. (laughs) Yeah, and then there was that line where it's like, the best money is the money that's yours and not someone else's. I think also Granny is really irritated that Nanny wrote a sex book, (laughs) The Joy of Sex, which is of course supposed to be a reference to the joys of sex, which is in turn a reference to the joy of cooking. So it's kind of a, a play on both of those. I think it's funny. I think it's hilarious that Nanny wrote a sex book, but I think it really irritates Granny that she made so much money off of something that Granny just does not care about. Now I'm slightly worried because Nanny Og's cookbook exists as like a real life thing you can buy. 
Like, that's a real published artifact yeah. here in Round World. Um, and we're probably going to have to read it for this podcast. I mean, they don't really dwell on the fact that it's, like, a sex book and that she wrote it. So, like, that's fine. Because I know we said before with, like, the romance with um, Casanunda, where you're like, well, there should be romances featuring, you know, people who aren't, like, teenagers. You know, like, th- that elderly women should have romance stories. Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, they should. And I don't think otherwise. I just don't want to read them. Or it's like, I also don't want to dwell on anyone, let alone, like, an old lady. Like, I just don't want to engage with sex. But, like, I thought it was very funny. <laughs> See, I, I want to read that this book. I mean, I don't think the actual book that exists in Round World is as provocative as the one that she wrote in in this book. But I want to read what Nanny Og has to say. But that's just me. I'm also kind of a perv when it comes to these kinds of things so i want to read it you heard it here first folks you heard it here first but yeah i i think it's hilarious and we also get confirmation that nanny has 15 children which i don't know if we've actually gotten a number before that's so many children that's more children like than i have siblings like i have seven siblings and that's a lot i did not know that about you that's a lot of siblings I did not. A lot of people, a lot of people tell me I have only child energy, which I think is weird. You know, I have never thought about it, but now that you've said that, if you hadn't mentioned that you had brothers and a sister at various points during the show, I probably would have thought you were an only child. Hmm. I have big oldest child energy, so I yeah, I and understand. I've also heard about your siblings. <laughs> My siblings are great. I am the first of three siblings. So let's talk about the third in this trio, Agnes, who is supposed to be Magrat's replacement, but is very much against the idea of becoming Magrat's replacement for most of the book. You said that you didn't really think Agnes, you didn't think that Agnes stood out in Lords and Ladies. What did you think about her in this book? She definitely felt more fleshed out as a character, like because we got more sections where it was just her doing things that weren't really, like, part of the main plot. Like, when it came down to it at the end. You know, it was just stuff where she's, like, auditioning for the opera or, like, dealing with Christine or, you know, like, walking around and talking to Walter and stuff. And, like, a lot of her motivations became, like, well, for me anyway, like, slightly more solidified. You know, where, like, she saw nanny and granny and was like oh well i better hide because i don't want them they've come to take me back to lanker and she thinks she's pulled one over on them so like it definitely felt like i could empathize with her more than her just being like the only student who actually wants to learn from nanny and granny on like how to actually be a witch in the last book Right. She seems like she has more of a personality that's separate from Diamanda, who was in the last book, and she feels like she can stand on her own, right? Like she yeah. she has a she has a voice, literally and figuratively, that can stand up to Granny and Nanny, even though Granny and Nanny are very powerful personalities. She's a woman who's thriving in the big city and like honestly, girl boss. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's also interesting that she's not, she is a Magrat replacement, but she's not like Magrat. She's not, she doesn't have that like placating romantic personality. She's very sensible. 
Like she, she even starts complaining about it at one point that she always has to be the responsible and stable one. Right. Like she always has to Mm. be the one. And that's why she comes up with the Perdita personality is that she wants sometimes to not have to be that person to be the romantic one, but she knows that she's not. And so you get this like really interesting split that starts to happen where she thinks her own thoughts, but then she starts to think Perdita's thoughts as well. Yeah, I like to have that dialogue, you know, between them where Perdita will say something and then Agnes will disagree or agree with it. What did you think about this? You said at the beginning you were worried that Walter was going to be like a parody of dissociative identity disorder. We actually have a different character who's starting to experience that. Are they starting to experience that or are they just like, because I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether it seems like that, but to me, I definitely like understood or took from Agnes that it's like, this is essentially like a coping mechanism with like mm. how the world perceives her and like seeing her speak to it or speak to um Perdita and the way she interacts with it being like how she feels confident in herself, at least for like, you know, three quarters of the books when they kind of, or before they kind of like become the same person, which, which is like the same way that Walter puts on the invisible mask. I think mm-hmm. Agnes and Perdita become slightly more aligned in being, this is a person who's comfortable and confident. So do you think Perdita is Agnes's mask or do you think Agnes is Perdita's mask? I'm not sure. It's not as clear-cut a case as Walter in this one, or like, I don't know, the most obvious example, like, Batman is the real person and Bruce Wayne is the mask. I think they're, like, co-people? I don't know what the phrase would be, because, like, I mean, they're not, well, at least to me, I don't think they're, like, clear examples of alters. There are a lot of things that typify alters and like dissociative identity disorder that I'm not going to like sit and mansplain because one, it's not my place. And two, I don't know them well enough to even be like, well, this is what happens. But you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel like that. It just feels like that there are two people and, you know, it feels like you could nearly have Purdy to be an actual separate person who was just Agnes's life coach. And I feel like that's Ah. like a mark of quality. I don't know. The way you said "ah" makes it seem like you're going to disagree. No, I'm not. Like I've disagree, fallen into your, I fall into your pit. I, I am not going to disagree, and I will not say more because I don't want to spoil things for you. But I do okay. think it's interesting the way that you describe them as like co co personalities. I guess maybe is that the right? Is, does that sound like what you were saying? Like I don't know. Co- I went with co people, so maybe co people. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, I I mean, I really identified with Agnes in a lot of ways, especially when she's talking to Walter and she says, I know what it's like being stuck with what you are and wanting to be someone else. I I really liked that. I thought that that was it, it told me so much about her as a character, like being stuck with who she is and how she's always I mean, and even Granny calls her out on it, right, where she says, yeah, you're going to try to not live like a witch, but you are a witch and you're going to act like a witch, like even now. 
you know, you're, you're sitting there thinking about the way that you're thinking about what's going on. And that's witch behavior. That's being a witch. And like, you know, like how she tries to pretend that mirrors don't affect her when she goes into the ballet studio, but they affect her anyway. It, it, it is a really mm. interesting way that she's drawn into this because she is a witch, but she doesn't want to be. She doesn't want to be. She doesn't. She very specifically says she doesn't want to be Granny Weatherwax, right? She says, I don't want to be an old lady who is alone and who is just thinks that she's smarter than everybody else, which is a really rude thing to say to Granny Weatherwax. But at the same time, I can see where that fear comes from because she doesn't understand yet that maybe there are other ways to go b- about being a witch. Granny Weatherwax also had that where she she says this to Lillian. She never had the choice. She had mm-hmm. to be the good one because Lillian was off making her own choices. And so I feel like, you know, like the way you, I don't know, children, I don't know whether it's everyone's experience, but you see that where children are like, well, I'm never going to be like my parents. Oh, because, yeah. Every child you know, they thought exempl- that. <laughs> yeah, because they exemplify, like, you know, something that I think is bad. But then, like, a lot of them end up being just like their parents for better or worse. Right. And Granny yeah. is very clearly the gifted child. Like, she's the one who was so gifted at such an early age that the people around her just assumed that she could handle things. And that, you know, it's hard when you're that person who is actually smarter than everybody else. And Granny talks about that a lot in this book, right? How she's like, do you ever, she asked Nanny, you know, do you ever worry about the fact that everyone around you is so stupid, you know, like where they don't, they don't notice things that she notices and it just, she respects Nanny and she it actually does respect Agnes quite a bit. And we, she's learned how to respect Magrat, but for the most part, she is just operating on a different playing field than everyone else around her. And it's hard to grow up like that. I think it's very isolating and it does. I think the same thing is happening to Agnes as well, but Agnes doesn't know what to do with it. She just sees what's happened to granny and just assumes that that's going to happen to her. Yeah. Like she's, I don't know. She's afraid. That's what, I don't know. Like that's what I took from it. Mainly afraid instead of like hateful or rebellious, even although she accepts her fate at the end, she accepts her identity and who she is. Well, and I really like that Granny does show some respect for Agnes. I mean, she does admit to Agnes that once she thought about changing her name. So she does understand, I think, what Agnes is going through in terms of this is a gifted child who is trying so hard to fit in, but she can't. She respects Nanny, too, because she brings up the point that Nanny has this way with people, almost a magic of her own where she just has this way of ingratiating herself with people from listening to them. It said that she had taken liking people and turned it into an art form. And even Granny kind of reflects, you know, maybe I should have done that. Maybe I should have learned from Nanny in this way, but it's kind of too late now. We can't really move on from talking about Agnes without talking about fatness. The constant descriptions of her fatness in this book, I understand what Pratchett is trying to do here because what he's trying to do is invest in a a version of opera where somebody's size was actually a marker of how good of a singer they were and that's what we get from Enrico Basilico as well 
but also yeah, he very much like the like the Pavarotti Andrea Bocelli style opera singer. Right, right, and then. What he's also trying to do is create that doubling between Christine, who looks really good but doesn't sing very well, and Agnes, who doesn't have what we would consider a conventional body. And Cizella, by the way, is the nastiest about it. He is so fat phobic in this book. It's disgusting. The constant descriptions of Agnes's size and the way that it's often associated with food made me really uncomfortable. Like... It's definitely really, really uncomfortable to read. And like you said, like, I, I understand what they're trying to do. Um, and because as well, like, when, you know, all the talk about the horned helmets and stuff, and it makes you think of, like, Wagnerian opera, where there's, like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like, you kind of imagine this large lady, um, singing really, really, like, beautifully. And no one co- like no one comments on the fact that she doesn't have a conventional body, mm-hmm. you know. Where it's like, well, she's just judging her singing thing, and that's kind of the traditionally associated picture. And then we're meant to be like, well, the opera is bad because we've moved away from this kind of thing, where we have the ludicrous setup of Christine will be on stage lip syncing to Agnes. Well, and Undershaft disagrees with it, right? Undershaft is like, he's going to go to bat for Agnes before he dies, where he's like, no, like. Who cares what she looks like? You know, like the old opera virtuosos, they nobody ever cared what they looked like. But it feels slightly misguided in setting it up because or yeah, it feels misguided. That's what I'm going to go with, because like, does it have good intentions? Probably because I can't speak to it. Like, I understand what it's trying to do thematically for the book and plot wise. But also I feel like there's probably 20 different ways you could have done that better. Or more sensitively, even. I also have to say, a lot of the stuff about fatness that's negative is said by other characters, not the narrator. However, the narrator does hit the idea that Agnes is not conventionally attractive really hard. And Agnes also clearly believes that about herself, which I find to be like really sad because honestly, I think that Agnes is probably very attractive. Okay, I want to caveat this by saying... Someone's worth is obviously not tied up in their attractiveness to any given person. That's mm-hmm. clearly correct. However, Agnes is a curvy queen. She's got great hair and a wonderful personality. I would date Agnes. She sounds lovely. <laughs> like, I don't I don't understand. Like, like that was the thing, is that this book is very invested in saying, oh, she's not attractive. And I'm like, she sounds pretty attractive to me. I don't understand what the problem is. Again. Caveated in the idea that my personal attraction doesn't determine the worth of anyone, but I just don't really understand the problem. Yeah, neither do I, but at at the same time, I'm glad they didn't go the route of, like, you know, like, the Breakfast Club route where they're like, we were going to fix her and make her conventionally attractive and give her a romance angle. Right. Like, and I think that's maybe because, like, partly because, well, you don't need to change yourself. You shouldn't need to change yourself for, you know someone else so you can be quote-unquote attractive um but also like it would be too close to magrat i think you know falling in love with barons you know in terms of character beats but yeah no like i'm really glad in terms of that that they didn't go to any lengths to make her more attractive conventionally um instead they were like well 
there's a problem with the system where we're judging her based solely off of her look and the size of her body. Yeah, I guess to me, that's the first step of saying like, oh, well, people shouldn't be judged based on their bodies. But then I feel like there's a further step where it's like, no, actually, people can be beautiful in different ways. And maybe she is actually also just beautiful. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I, I one step's been taken in this book. The next step needs to be taken as well couple of other things before we start to wrap up. We need to talk about Gribo or Lord Gribo. Why is sexy Gribo back? I love Gribo in this. I love the explanation that it's just a stress response now <laughs> because yeah, his body like has Hulk. transformed. Yeah, his body has transformed once. And so once you do it, once you create that pathway, it's easier to do it again. Yeah, I like that because it's very, like, you know, it's in keeping with the rules you set up in equal rights, you know, or about, like, the size and shape of minds. And if you push too far, you'll end up being a bird who remembers being a human only in dream. But this is the physical manifestation because Grebo's changed his body but not his mind instead of Esk <laughs> changing her mind but not her body. I love the line where it makes it clear that even though he is sexy Grebo, ugly sexy Grebo, that both both <laughs> Granny Weatherwax. This is our and biggest Nanny point Og. of contention. <laughs> Even though he's back, I love that both Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og are like not attracted to him or are not like affected by him at all because it says Granny Weatherwax didn't trust a cat no matter what form it was in, and Nanny Og always thought he was like Mr. Fluffy. Yeah. I love the relationship between Grebo and Nanny Og, and I loved that Grebo loves Walter in this, like, follows him around. He thinks that they're playing when they're, like, chasing each other across the opera. And they say, like, he goes up to Walter, like, when he's human, he goes up to Walter and recognizes, like, this is a person who gave me food. Yes. Which, <laughs> like, isn't, like, I mean, it's funny, and it's, like, an animalistic way of thinking, but it's also, like, most people hate Grebo. Grebo's kind of like a bastard. He's like right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and so like I mean, he he's been in, like he's been through the wars. He's lost an eye, and like a a lot of people probably don't treat Grebo very kindly when he shows up. Even Granny Weatherwax hates him. Right. Like, the only one the who only loves one who him is Nanny. Yeah. Yeah. So having someone who like actually you know just sees oh it's a cat and gives him food is probably like nearly unknown to him i'd like to see a grebo team up with gaspode yes can we get that i would love that yeah i feel like i've mentioned the need for a a discworld pet avengers (laughs) a pet avengers yes i completely agree with you there one of my other favorite parts of this book was grebo the part where it's like um the strategy of cats everywhere when being chased is to jeer at it's pursuers from a place of safety. Yeah. I see no God up here other than me. (laughs) Also, I just want to say Grebo does a lot of heavy lifting in the last act of this book physically. And he does all of that for one Kipper. I feel like he, that cat should get more than one Kipper for all of the activity that he does. Do this. Why? Oh, there might be a Kipper in it for you. (laughs) I was watching a clip from, the dropout TV show, um, Alma actually, where like Matt Mercer did this round where he like 
pointed out a whole bunch of like inconsistencies with the thing they had and like the actual rules of D and D, and he found like twenty of them. Some of the ones, like the whole thing was like, tell us what's wrong about this, and he found ones that they hadn't even thought of. And then they gave him one point, and they literally were like, "Why does he get only one point for that?" Which is the same as like us going like, "Um, he's um actually he's not a droid about either R two D two or C three PO." And like they get the same points where it's like, well, it doesn't really matter what Grebo does in this book, he's just going to get the one kipper, so he may as well like go whole hog. This is wonderful to me. I thumbs up on the Grebo content. Now, one of the things I just wanted to say, and it's going back to this, like I'm going off of what I'd like to see, because you mentioned at the start that like this feels like it should be a watch book because it's like a murder mystery one. And I know that there are like, you know, figuring out who's died or like who's killed people, you know, like when when um, death is using the Ghana in Men at Arms, uh, Edward Death, that's his name. I couldn't remember his first name. Uh, you know, but like they they've never really done like a locked room murder mystery, and that's what I really want to see. I don't know whether any of the books are actually like that, but you know, like an Agatha Christie, and then there were nun style book, but with like Sam Vimes. I have good news for you, Nigel. Oh, tune in next week for another classic city watch who done it in Feet of Clay, which definitely what? has a locked room vibe to it. It's not. Oh, it's yes. not exactly what you're describing but it is very very close to what you're describing yes so yeah i think you'll Woo! really appreciate that that's my bread and butter son i also apologize to everyone's ears <laughs> i'm really happy you're excited about it because feet of clay is one of my favorites so i yeah i'm good uh, i'm good with this it's also one of my favorite phrases feet of clay yeah you'll really like this book i'm i'm I don't try to, I, I would not Influence dare to me. say, I would not dare to say like, oh, I know Nigel would like this book because we are not the same people. I, I know that you like different things than I do, but I feel like you're going to like this book. Like, I feel like there are just some books that I just know, like, I'm just like, she's going to like this. Yeah, but also like you understand now why I like the things I do from my obviously like one hundred percent you know why from my latest appearance on on Monkey. You did the Nigel Science episode where you assigned us different pop culture things. Yeah, that you and found now you know how my mind works. Yeah, I've completely psychoanalyzed you. I understand everything about your brain. Everything. Oh, that's good. <laughs> You're like, can you tell me now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When I had to present uh, poems for my poetry class, I read out. I had to read out a couple, and then my lecturer was like, "I'm not sure which self you're presenting," and I was like, "Oh, you and me both, buddy." Yeah, I don't know. Why would I know that? The other thing that I really didn't like in this book, even more, I think, than some of the problematic content with fatness, is I'm not a fan of giving people things to eat or drink that they don't know that other things are in them. Mainly because yeah. I I find that to be not only gray ethically, which this book seems to agree with, but also because there's a lot... I have a lot of digestive issues and a lot of intolerances and allergies, and I haven't personally experienced this, but I know a lot of people who have where people will just be like, oh, are you really allergic to that? Here, let me give you something and not tell you that the thing you're allergic to is in it. 
That's a real thing that people yeah. do to people with allergies. It's not okay at all because people could die from that shit. But then also, yeah. like, just in general, it's not a good thing to do. Don't give people things where they don't know what's in the food. Yeah, spiking is such a massive issue for, like, especially yeah. AFAB people or female presenting people, mm-hmm. where, like, it's not even something that they'll have been given without knowing what's in it. It's something that they've presumed is safe. So, like, yeah. And this, as well, like, in terms of, like, bad things, I know how we, like, we mentioned in the last episode that, like, rape should not be the butt of a joke. In this, like, I mean, they say, there's a quote where it's like, Grebo could sexually harass someone just by sitting quietly in the next room. Where it's like, yeah. why did why did that need to be said? Like, sexual harassment shouldn't be a joke just because you've got ugly, sexy Grebo. Yeah, you can have ugly, sexy Grebo be, like, exuding sexuality without making yeah, a joke about sexual harassment. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a way you could have, like, you know, you could have said, like, he could have made someone attracted, you know, f- by sitting quietly in the next room. Like, and that right. would have been the same thing. But you just, di- like, I don't see the need for making it a joke about sexual harassment. Yeah, completely, completely agree. So, yeah, and, and Agnes is not the only person guilty of this. Nanny Og also gives... Granny and Bucket and Cezella and Enrico a dessert that has something in it that makes them like sexually aroused. Didn't like that scene at all. Like, it's mm. just not okay to give people things that they don't know when they're imbibing it, what they're in for. So that's just something I, yeah, ugh, no, 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 no. Cameos and callbacks. Did you like the callback to Weird Sisters at the beginning where Nanny Og does the when shall we three meet again? And then, of course, repeats it at the end. Yeah, I really liked it because it bookends the book really nicely. But then it also like really emphasizes that Magrat is gone. Yeah, it does. They say, uh, you know, they can go to Annie Lenton and say that like Granny misses Magrat. And that you need three people, but having like a physical example of when when shall we three, two meet again? And then it's like so happy when they find their third, and and they're able to say it at the end, right? When shall we three meet again? Or when shall we three meet for the first time? So that yeah. it just it feels like you said it feels like a good bookend. There are a lot of references to previous books in this. Um, Nanny, or sorry, Granny talks about. The events she references the events of Lords and Ladies and Witches Abroad in there, and then other people tell Agnes about like the dragon and how they continued to do a show even when the dragon was terrorizing the city back in Guards Guard. So you get a lot of those kinds of references. That would be such a funny cutaway if they ever make an adaptation of Guards Guards, <laughs> like a flashback to the the like opera house being on fire and then like. doing opera yeah that would be great as sybil is being sacrificed to the dragon you just cut (laughs) a lot cut across to the opera house (laughs) i love it there are several cameos from other books you get uh mrs palm who is a madam of a very famous brothel in onkmoreport and carrot's previous landlord yeah shout out to granny weatherwax for being a sex worker ally like she's great in this where she's just like yeah, yeah. they make they're making a living what what do you want me to do about it yeah great great stuff although i do think it was very funny agnes's letter to her mother 
being like, I went to the Guild of Seamstresses with my needle to, like, you know, show off my work, and you would be very surprised at what they were doing. Like, yeah. <laughs> that was very funny. And it's also not, it's also not poking fun at sex workers. Like, I mean... Surprise is fine! Yeah, because it's a simple, it's a simple joke where it's like, you know, you set up one thing and then it's actually the other thing. Simple misdirection. There. That's how you right. make a joke. Yeah, surprise is fine. You can be surprised at something happening and it can be funny. It's when you get judgy about it that we start getting into bad territory. There's also a lot of references to the new watch, which was, of course, started at the end of Men at Arms. So you get Commander Vimes is referenced several times in this. And we also Mm. get Nobby and Detritus, who attend the opera (laughs) incognito. That was so funny. Count Detritus. <laughs> <laughs> Corporal Count Nobby Nobs, Nobby De Nobs, who has to carry yeah. a card around now to prove that he's human. No, I'm just like, I'm still sort of spluttering over, like, what exactly does Nobby look like, and why is he so offensive to the concept of being <laughs> human? Like, because it's quite obviously, like, you know, poking fun at him, but it feels so, like, bizarre and surreal, where it's like, why? That it's hilarious. Like, what did he do? What does he look like? What does his middles and I'm still I still haven't figured out what his middle initials are. <laughs> like what they stand for. What do they stand for? I don't know, and I'm not I'm afraid to Google it. I don't actually know either, so it'll be it'll be fun to see if we actually ever find out. We also, mm. of course, get the librarian who is recruited to help fix the organ and then play the organ during that final performance and during the chase scene. And then the librarian takes over the actual conducting of the orchestra during the performance. Yeah, I'm glad that the librarian, yeah, can just have fun and play the organ. It's because the organ at the, at the university is also a bloody stupid Johnson organ. It is also a bloody stupid Johnson organ, although it's this one at the Opera House doesn't seem as good as the one that they have at Unsane University because it doesn't have like the full range of sounds that the librarian yeah. is used to working with. But I I like that the librarian has such a finely attuned sense of drama and vibes that he knows that during that moment when Grebo is chasing Walter across the Opera House ceiling, basically. That he's like, okay, this recalls for some dramatic organ music. Like, here we go. Like, ties the bow tie around his head and just starts, like, playing. Yeah. Good, good ape, that librarian. Good ape. He, he knows what he's about. I, I liked as well, he gave Agnes a chance when she started to say monkey. Yeah. And Andre tells her it's because he likes you. Yeah, because he doesn't go in for warnings. Yeah, I love that. But I think also that might have sold me on, like, that Agnes is a good character. The fact that, like, the librarian likes her enough to give her a warning. And then I, yeah. I thought it was a very funny gag being like, get get the, <laughs> get that orangutan a, a bow tie. But sir, he doesn't have a neck. Well, it's the, <laughs> <laughs> it's the, basically the thought of it that counts. When he's thinking to himself, like, oh, you know, it's it's weird that he lied to Bucket and said that I want like that he wouldn't move from the organ and like he paid me a bunch of peanuts to be here. Oh well, must be hard being a human. Glad I'm not one anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like like yeah, glad glad I don't have to deal with being a human anymore. Is the librarian right? 
Is it right to be, be better to be an ape than a human? Yes. Perhaps. Perhaps. All right, we have four death sightings in this book. The first one happens when Death is trying to convince a swan to sing his swan song before take before reaping him, as it were. And of course, he tricks ends up tricking him into singing the swan song. The second one that I thought you would find very interesting is that Granny Weatherwax and Death actually play a game. Uh, they play this a game is my for the life. They play a game for the life of a child. Tell me what you liked about it. I it's so simple. Like it's it's probably one of the more moralistic parts of it. But it's so simple and effective. And like I have a bit, few bits of it highlighted where it's like, yeah, I, I have faith really in what particular deity? Oh, none of them. Then faith in what? Just faith, you know, in general. Death leaned forward, the candlelight raised new shadows on his skull. Courage is easy by candlelight. Your faith, I suspect, is in the flame. And then she doesn't flinch when the lights go out. But, that, like, I mean, that, like, this is Granny sitting with, you know, and, like, bargaining for the, the life of a child. And then he's like, I lose, all I have is four ones. After making them switch hands. Yeah. Uh, you know, he looked back into Granny's eyes for a moment. There was a blue glow in the depth of his eye sockets, maybe for the merest fraction of a second, barely noticeable even to the closest observation. One winked off. Yeah, he like winks at her after making them switch hands, which after reading soul music, we know that death knows what's going to happen. So there's a lot you could ask here about like, did he know that his hand was better originally and he wanted her to win? Like, yeah, I think there's this is a very interesting scene. I also love the part at the end where she's where he's like, what would have happened if I'd won? And she said, well, I would have broken your arm for a start. <laughs> yeah, I like that. But this is also like this is the new death who kind of like cares about the people that he has to, you know, that he has to read. Yeah. Whereas if if he were doing the job just as the auditors and as and um, as as real death of the universe wanted him to do then that child would just be dead instead yeah. of getting to live out a life and not be, uh, you know, sick and unhealthy. Yeah, I loved this scene. I thought that was great. And I like that he's like, okay, we can play, but we can't play chess or cripple Mr. Onion. Like, he has a whole list of games that he doesn't want to play. And also, because that's like a whole big tradition in literature and folklore and stuff, like playing a game with death. You know, like playing chess with death and the film The Seventh Seal and that kind of thing. Yeah. We also get a death sighting. He comes to take Mr. Undershaft. So we get this like moment where he gets to talk to Undershaft about music and about death. And then he also comes for Cezella at the end when Cezella dies. So that was really cool. The fact that death is dressed all in red. You the know, mask like to of the fit red the death. Whole yeah, the whole masquerade thing, and this is what he... He references that when he's talking to Rincewind, or he makes another reference to Mask of the Red Death, but then when um, Sozella's like, take off the mask, I can see the strings on it, and then he, Death reveals like his actual skull face, and he goes, oh, take that one off as well. Yeah. Yeah, because he doesn't realize that it is Death. Yeah, take off your mask. Ugh, so creepy, but in the best way. 
Yeah, there's definitely a version of that you could do to make it, like, even more, like, terrifying. Because I feel like Discworld yeah. is, yeah, Discworld's really good at taking, like, normal kind of, like, supernatural type things and making them really scary. Like, the fairies yes. in uh, Lords and Ladies. Or, what is it that they say again and again when they've got um, Magrat trapped? Lady! Lady! Come out, yeah. lady! Yeah. Ugh. So there is also one death of rat sighting. When Mr. Pounder dies, we get another human being taken by the death of rats. And he's reincarnated as a rat. I like that. I mean, like, I think it's interesting because this is the second time it's happened because we get Mr. Cleet being taken by the death of rats in soul music. But also this idea of, like, people, some people actually have the souls of animals. Like, Magrat, remember when they were like, deep down, she's really a bongoose? Like, she's a, a cuddly little creature, but if you put her in a corner, she's going to fight back, you know? I, I think it's interesting, yeah. the idea that, like, some people maybe are more aligned with certain animals through personality or through their job or whatever. And so it makes sense that the death of rats would show up for some people. Because it goes back to, like, identity and, like, it's kind of the most tangible expression of, like, well, you know, you can't really account for who people are fully. Because even if you, you know them really well and have interacted with them in person, maybe their soul is different to yours. Uh, like, you know, not just by being a different person, maybe their soul is an animal's soul. And yeah. Yeah, it is slightly strange that we've had two of them so far, but Death of Rats is the only real separate entity from death anymore like i feel like if there were a proper like separate death of dogs or something you know instead of death appearing as a big dog to oh what's his name the guy in uh the guy that gaspode fights big fido fido yeah instead of appearing as a doctor fido you know having a separate one like have the black dog be death of dogs then maybe we might see people whose souls are dogs. It makes sense if you're going to be reincarnated as an animal, that that animal would show up. But like you said, the only one that's separate from death currently is death of rats. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. There are no sort mentions in this book. Sadly, no sort mentions. We are out of sorts. We are out of sorts. The first footnote occurs in my book on page 11, so quite late comparatively to other books where they happen on the first couple pages. And pretty soon now, young Mildred Tinker's mother would have a quiet word with Mildred Tinker's father, and he'd have a word with his friend Thatcher, and he'd have a word with his son Hob, and then there'd be a wedding, all done in a properly civilized way except for maybe a black eye or two. Footnote. The people of Lanker thought that marriage was quite a serious step that ought to be done properly, so they practiced quite a lot. So that's the first footnote, the idea that marriage practices in Linker are perhaps conducted amongst more rural understandings of of what marriage is. And so there's a lot of them generally. Um, People's life expectancies are shorter. And the idea that like parenting is also a reason to get married if you're going to have a child, all of those types of things. What was your favorite footnote, Nigel? My favorite footnote is the footnote about bloody stupid Johnson. Um, where we find out that Bloody Stupid is was not his actual name, but it was obviously when people saw the BS and thought, well, it must stand for Bloody Stupid. <laughs> Burgolt Stutley Johnson was Ankh Morpork's most famous, or rather most notorious, inventor. 
He was renowned for never letting his number blindness, his lack of any skill whatsoever, or his complete failure to grasp the essence of a problem standing in the way of his cheerful progress as the first counter-Renaissance man. Shortly after <laughs> building the famous... Shortly after building the famous collapsed Tower of Quirm, he turned his attention to the world of music, particularly large <laughs> organs and mechanical orchestras. Examples of his handiwork still occasionally come to light in sales, auctions, and quite frequently, wreckage. Oh my god, that is a good one. I really like that one. The one that I, I have is the one where they're talking about Nanny making scumble. I was putting that by for some new piping for my still up at Copperhead, said Nanny. Footnote. Distillation of alcohol was illegal in Lanker. On the other hand, King Vernus had long ago given up any idea of stopping a witch doing something she wanted to do and so merely required Naniog to keep her still somewhere it wasn't obvious. She thoroughly approved of the prohibition, since this gave her an unchallenged market for her own product, known wherever men fall backwards into a ditch as a suicider. So I thought this was great, not only because I think it's really funny that like she supports prohibition, but only because it allows her like an open market to be able to sell her own product. But also because I have a, a really funny family story about prohibition in the United States. So my, okay. my ancestors on my dad's side come from the Czech Republic. They, they come from Bohemia specifically. And they came like late 19th century over here. And they settled in Iowa in like mainly Czech communities, like very insular, very like you know, closed off from like outsiders, spoke Czech in their community, etc. And during Prohibition, those communities basically treated the United States Prohibition laws like they were suggestions. Like, no, like we drink, like, what are you talking about? Basically, that kind of thing. And so, yeah. uh, for example, the Justice of the Peace uh, was one of my ancestors in one of the counties up in Iowa. His name was Joseph Suela. And he owned like three bars during Prohibition. Like that's the kind of like level of cognitive dissonance that we're talking about here. But once there was a Suela who was caught by non-Czech, like the, the U.S. officials who were not part of this community, was caught with a still making alcohol. And so he was arrested and like given over to the authorities in this community. And they were like, you have to charge him. And so they're like, OK, fine, we'll charge him. And so he insisted on a jury of his peers. And so it was all like these Czech people from the community that were on this jury. And they dismissed the trial after deliberating for an hour on lack of evidence. They literally drank the evidence. That. Yeah. And so that's my family history with prohibition. Basically, my family ignored it. <laughs> it was just a suggestion anyway. So that footnote just made me think of my family, which is always fun. All right. Uh, what's something that made you laugh? I don't know. There's a few like honorable mentions. I think when they're talking about the nibelungs and the nibelungigungigung is kind of like uh, the <laughs> banana na 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 na. And then also, um, let me through. I'm a nosy person. Uh, made me laugh. <laughs> the the translations are all great. All the translations of the uh, the opera lyrics. Because I've already mentioned the notes, which made me laugh a lot. Uh, which. I just think sending a note that just says, ah, 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 you know, sincerely, the ghost. I like the when Nanny Og's trying to explain opera to Granny Weatherwax, 
There's your heavy opera where basically people sing for it and it goes like, oh, 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 I'm dying. Oh, I'm dying. Oh, 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 that's what I'm doing. And then there's your light opera where they sing in foreign and it basically goes beer, 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 beer. I like to drink lots of beer, although sometimes they drink champagne instead. That's basically all of opera. What? Either dying or drinking Mm. beer? Basically, yes, said Nanny, contriving to suggest that this was the whole gamut of human experience. And that's opera. Well, there might be some other stuff, but mostly it's stout or stabbing. (laughs) My other honorable mention is Grebo drinking the milk like a cat while in a human body. I don't know why that just tickled me so much, but the idea of like a fully grown, ugly, sexy man just standing in a corner lapping milk out of a out of a glass. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Just the the line, you wouldn't get away with this sort of thing in the world of cheese. Because when you just take that... Like, that's such a ridiculous, like, sentence on its own. Like, devoid of the context of the book. That it's like, yeah, this would be, this would be great no context. No thing. context. What's something that made you think? Uh, I'm going to have to go with... Um, I'm going to have to go with the... If you know the difference between right and wrong, you can't choose wrong and live. Like, that yeah. feels like the, uh, you know, personal isn't the same as important of this book. Like, that's th- this is what it all boils down to. Yeah, like, if you actually understand the choice between right and wrong, can is there even a choice anymore? I just, I think that that is really thought-provoking as well. I, I'm going to just double down and say the thing that Agnes says as well earlier You want to be something else and you're stuck with what you are, said Agnes. I know all about that. I liked the idea that just like you're stuck with what you are, right? And so like the best you can do is to come to peace with that, to come to terms with what you are, who you are, and figure out how to be that best version of yourself for yourself. Mm. All right. So as I advertised mid-episode, next week we are reading Feet of Clay, which is a city watch book. Very excited. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find my shows, uh, Archive of Myers and Hyperfixations, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, and then you can find me on Twitter, at Spicy Nigel, where uh, recently I've mainly just been counting down the days until Avatar 2 comes out. I, I'm very, uh, I'm following your, your countdown avidly. I'm like, oh yeah, that many days, huh? I say that to my mother every day. I'm like, do you know what day it is today? And she goes, no. And then I go like, oh, it's 205 days until Avatar 2 comes out every single day. Um, <laughs> What's her reaction to that? She keeps forgetting that it's coming. It's very funny. <laughs> oh, oh. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Spela Tessa. Spela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, at Monkey Backlog. You can find this podcast at Nanny's Book Club on Twitter and at Nanny Ogg's Book Club on Instagram. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. When shall we three meet again? We haven't met once yet. Oh, of course we have. I've personally known you for at least, I mean, we three haven't met, you know, officially. All right. When shall we three meet? We're already here. All right. When shall... Oh, just shut up and get out the marshmallows, Agnes. Give Nanny the marshmallows. Yes, Granny. And mind you don't burn mine.
Granny sat back. It was a clear night, although clouds mounting towards the hub promised snow soon. A few sparks flew up towards the stars. She looked around proudly. Isn't this nice? She said. The end.